in mere Christianity, written by C.S. Lewis. He called it the great sin. He said there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which every man in the world loathes when they see it in others, and of which hardly any people except some Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault, he said, which we are more unconscious of in ourselves, and the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. End of quote. Of course, this vice is the sin of pride. Pride is a devastating sin. One writer said of pride, it is nothing more than an exaggerated and dishonest self-evaluation. Pride says, I want people to notice me, admire me, praise me, flatter me, idolize me. I want people to ascribe to me a value of importance, honor, reputation, and significance that I do not deserve. In effect, the prideful person puts himself in the place of God and refuses to see himself as God sees him. I mean, pride is a devastating sin. And of course, there are warnings all throughout the word of God against the sin of pride. Proverbs 6.16 says, Six things that the Lord hates... Seven are an abomination, and one of those is haughty eyes. In other words, a, a proud look and the one who sows discord among brothers. The Lord hates. I, I mean, I don't know if we sometimes think within the character of God, certainly what he loves, but he hates a haughty look. Proverbs 8.13 says pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech. It says there, I hate. So here the writer, God himself as well, hate pride. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then disgrace. Pride, then disgrace. Proverbs 16.5 Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. On they go. Proverbs, maybe one more, 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. I mean, I suppose there's many things that could hurt our church or hurt your home. But it could be that the greatest threat to what the Spirit of God is doing here is pride, whether it be in the life of the church or whether it be in your home. It is a sin that we have to gain control over. In fact, in the New Testament, maybe you remember in the book of Acts by way of word picture, King Herod was reveling in his own glory and he took his seat on his royal throne to those who were privileged uh, to be in his presence that day. And as he sat on that royal throne, the people cried out, the voice of a God 
and not a man. The voice of a God and not a man. And he didn't shut it down. Immediately, an angel, Acts 12 says, smote him because he did not give God glory. And he was eaten by worms and he died. Man, this is a devastating sin. And as we turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 4, Daniel chapter 4, open there, we meet possibly the most prideful man ever in all of the scripture, Satan, the only exception. I mean, it could be, and maybe there's other lists of prideful men, certainly. But Nebuchadnezzar, we gain a window into his soul of the devastating sin of pride. Now, as you open to Daniel chapter 4, the theme of this chapter is clear. You say, how? Look at 4.17, moving forward. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end, here's the purpose, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowly, lowliest of men. There's the theme that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men and he gives it to who he will. Glance down in chapter 4 and verse 25 where it says here in the middle of 25, you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you. Here it is, into 25, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and he gives it to whom he will. Look at verse 32. And you shall be driven, speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, among men, and your dwelling place shall be with the beast of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High, here it is again, rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. I mean, I've been saying for, I suppose, nine weeks now, that God is sovereign and King Nebuchadnezzar only wins battles when God allows it. The only when God allows it, in, according to chapter 1, 1 and 2. And Nebuchadnezzar in this context only understands dreams when God chooses to reveal them in chapter 2 and in chapter 4 through Daniel. Now, as you set your eyes there in Daniel chapter 4, there is a little bit of a time lapse between 3 and 4, and I just orient your mind this way. In fact, you're looking at your Bible, and the last phrase was, then the king, 3.30, promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. In other words, after their marvelous, miraculous, uh, you know, deliverance from the fiery furnace, they were all promoted, especially those three, Daniel in chapter 2. And then you just pick up chapter 4 and verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar gave to all the peoples. But there's a time lapse there. We look through certain scriptures and writings uh, between 3 and 4. You could even glance, you don't have to, down in chapter 4, building operations seem to have stopped in verse 30. There's peace, as you'll see in just a moment, in chapter 
4 and in verse 4. And so, beloved, I just want you to know, close to 30 years, 30 years has transpired between the events of chapter 3 and the fiery furnace uh, of chapter, chapter 3, the fiery furnace, and now 4. And so I orient that to you so that Daniel is not a teenager anymore. Three years, he's 18. He is likely 45 to 50 at this time. And so here is King Nebuchadnezzar earlier at the beginning of his ministry. Now he's moving towards not, not quite the end, but yes, the end. The next chapter, Daniel is 45 to 50. Now, let me give you one more thing before we dive in. Chapter 4 includes also the spiritual biography of Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe even you'll see his autobiography. It is the king's testimony of his amazing conversion, if you will. In fact, you'll see bookends in 4, 1 through 3, and then he bookends his own testimony of what God did in 34 through 37. They bookend Nebuchadnezzar's praise of God. Now, as we dive in, let's look at the introduction in chapter 4, 1 through 2. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Stop there just for a second. He gives here in this introduction um, a royal proclamation. It's a state document, if you will. It's universal in scope. He's writing to all the peoples of the known global world at that point. He's writing to all the nations. And he said there, as we just read, it seemed good to me to show how great are his signs. Look at verse 3. And the wonders that the most high God has done. And so he said there in verse 2 what he's done. Verse 3, look at it again. How great are his signs. How mighty are his wonders. Now those signs and wonders include the dreams, certainly in chapter 2, that Daniel interpreted, the first dream. Those signs and wonders included the deliverance of those three men in chapter 3. And I believe as he writes this as a preference, it includes his amazing conversion of his own life in chapter 4. I think in the end, you will see that I believe that Nebuchadnezzar came to true faith in God, but we must wait for it at the end. Now, he mentions this thought in 2 and in verse 3 on signs and wonders. Those signs and wonders, the miraculous, lead to something very specific. Look to verse 3, that his kingdom, not Nebuchadnezzar's, is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And the question would come, you're like, well, wait a minute. Um, he's not saved yet, no, but he, he's looking back, if you will, and he's telling you about his biography. And you ask the question is, how did a self-willed, cruel, tyrannical king be brought to a place of humility? 
How did he go from building a 90-foot golden image in the plain of Dura, of himself, we think, to bowing down his knee to the most high God? That's where we're going. We've looked at these chapters. I think they're going to come up on the screen. His display, God's, over Daniel's life. His sovereign dominion over the nations in chapter 2. Last week, we looked at chapter 3, his deliverance from that fiery furnace. And here in chapter 4, just a header over it, is his sovereign decree over Nebuchadnezzar himself. Now, the focus of chapter 4, let me get the big picture in your mind, and I want to say buckle up and get ready because we'll probably do chapter 4, all 37 verses in, I think, three messages. So you can tell me, you can see that I'm moving quicker, and obviously that's because it's narrative, it's not as, uh, you know, detailed as the book of Ephesians, but here the focus of chapter 4 is a dream, and in this dream, It is three items, revealed, number one. It's secondly, it's interpreted. And then thirdly, it's fulfilled. It's revealed, interpreted, fulfilled, and I'll say it again, in order that you may know you. In order, he's gonna say later, in order that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men. So let's go. Here's first, the dream is revealed. The dream is revealed, and it goes from verse 4 down through 19. And in this revealing, if you will, there are two aspects to it. First, the circumstances of the dream, and then later in a little bit, we'll look at the content of the dream, but they all come under the dream revealed. Say, what are the circumstances regarding it? Look down in your text. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, so he's writing himself, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Stop there just for a second. He's at ease. This is the king of the known world. To be at ease means that he's free from fear. In other words, he's flourishing. He is prosperous. He is the master, the Lord as he sees it, in his own kingdom. He is, we might say in the vernacular today, he's the man. In the globe, not in the city, not on the sports uh, complex. He's the man. He's at his peak, if you will. The the hanging gardens, I'll tell you about that in the next few weeks. He built, it was one of the seven known wonders of the world. And he he built it for his wife. But he has arrived, if you will. Reminds me of another king called Lion King. Do you remember that movie? And the famous song, Hakuna Matata. And I think you remember it, although it goes back, I think, to 94. And Hakuna Matata means there's no problems. Don't worry about it. It has the the definition of that very song, no worries. That's Nebuchadnezzar. 
The hanging gardens are out there. One of the seven wonders of the world. He builds it for his wife. He's conquered kingdoms. Buildings seem to stop. He's at his ease. He's flourishing. He's prosperous. Then Nebuchadnezzar had a terrifying dream. Look, it's in verse 5. He says, I saw a dream that made me just afraid. It's a strong term. And as I lay in my bed, the, it, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. I mean, just for a second, he is horrified. That's the way it is with people, is it not? That sometimes at their ease, at their peak, God allows things to come into one's life. And he certainly did with this prideful king. He is alarmed. He is afraid. He is horrified. So what does he do? Look at verse 6. It says there, I made a decree, Nebuchadnezzar, he does this a lot, that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. And then typical, verse 7, then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. And interesting, and a difference here from chapter 2, I told them the dream, comma, but they could not make it, make known to me its interpretation. In other words, in 2, he said, I'm not telling you the dream, nor will I tell you the interpretation, tell me both. But here he actually tells them the dream, but they still can't explain it. So if they're on a batting, if they're on a, a baseball team, these dudes are batting zero. They don't even make an attempt to. Now you say, well, maybe they didn't know what it was. He told them the dream here, but they couldn't interpret it. Maybe they didn't know. Or maybe they knew, don't know, and they were afraid to tell them because maybe the dream wasn't so good. So they can't get it. You might ask the question, why was Daniel, you notice in verse 6 and 7, why was he not included in this first group? And I could honestly say, I think we don't know. But he calls all the other guys. But you have to remember at this point, Nebuchadnezzar is unsaved. And in Romans 8, Paul says, you know, in this way, the unsaved man sets his mind on the what? On the flesh. So Daniel's been serving alongside, but he doesn't get in that first group. He sought counsel elsewhere. Isn't that what people do today? Some of your family, some of your friends, who's grown up around the truth of the scripture, who know the truth, who know chapters, verses, stories, and you're praying for them, but sometimes they seek it elsewhere. They, they're around it, but they somehow go to human wisdom, and sometimes that human wisdom is called Google, or their friends, or whatever else it is. But I think there may be something more than just turning to them. It could be that Daniel's delay to not come in in that first group is his own choosing, not the king's. It could be that he intentionally let the others come first 
Then he finally comes in. I, I think that's what it is. I think it sets the stage for Daniel. He knew there wasn't wisdom in those men. So how do you know that? Look at verse 8. And at last, at last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belshazzar, Belteshazzar. After the name, you'll notice Nebuchadnezzar says here, of my God. But he says, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the, that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. He says, in you, 30 years later, he knows of Daniel, but he says, I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you. He uses that in chapter four, verse eight. He uses it in verse nine. He uses it in verse 18. Three times he says, the spirit of the holy gods is in you. But you'll note there in verse eight, he says there, and, and there's leeway here in the grammar, the spirit, small s, not capital S, of the holy gods, small g, not capital G. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar we know is a polytheist. He still is here, but I know that there's some kind of spirit in you, he says, of the holy gods, but it's little g, he's still a polytheist. So the dream is revealed, at least the circumstances surrounding the dream, but it led the king, secondly, to the contents of the dream. The contents of the dream. Still, look at verse 10. He gives you the contents. The visions of my head as I lay upon my bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew, it became strong, its top reached to the heaven and it was visible to the end of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches and all flesh was fred, fed from it. Here's the dream. I, I just, that, that's the, the contents of it. The focus of this dream, as I mentioned earlier, is a tree. And so he's at ease prospering and then this content comes into his mind. This tree is large. Better word would be enormous. Maybe a better word is just massive. I mean, I, I went to uh, Patty, General Grant's tree. We got to General Grant's tree this last Monday. And I think I took a picture of it, but I got to the tree. The tree is massive, as you know. If you haven't been there, you got to go see this. But to, to look at it, I, I went like, like this, and I'm rising, and I'm rising, and I'm rising, and I had to step back. It's just massive. Think about this one, though. It's going all the way, not to a height, but it's going actually through the sky. It is enormous. 
It grew tall in appearance. This tree, uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, reached to heaven. The tree, the location was in the midst of the earth. Uh, Realtor is going to say three things important on a piece of property. What are they? Location, location, location. That's in people's minds how they buy. This tree, massive, it's going through the heavens and it's placed right in the middle of the earth. He says it's visible in the text there to the whole earth. And I think that's hyperbolic, if you will. In other words, in this vision though, it's seen by all. He goes on to explain that its foliage is beautiful, its fruit abundant. The tree was a protection even for the beast of the field. In other words, it was a shelter. And in this massive tree were birds dwelling in it like a sanctuary. And so it is enormous, it is large, it is visible, it is massive. The Bible says there that all creatures fed themselves from it. I mean, it's all good. What's horrifying about that? Well, nothing really until you put your head down in the text. Look at verse 13. And then he said, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. Picture this, massive tree, and then this angelic, called here, a watcher. It is an angel. It is keeping vigilant watch over the affairs of men. And it wasn't just an angel. I suppose it's true of all angels. This angel was identified as a holy one. And this angel is descending, is the picture. He's coming down from heaven, and he's got a very strong word for a proud king. This angel crashed the party. And it wasn't the cops that crashed it, okay? Just, he's watching this, and fear takes hold of him again. He crashes the party. Say, so what did the angelic watcher say? Look at verse 14. It says, he proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip all of its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it, and let the, and the birds from its branches. Verse 15, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his, his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. I mean, no wonder he's frightened. He's at ease, but here's the circumstances and now the content and the language says that this angel shouted, hew it down, cut it down. In other words, it will be judged. Lop off the branches, strip off the leaves. We're not talking about pruning here, 
for our farmers. They prune. Season comes, they prune. The season grows, they prune. Not this one. You chop it down, I'm judging it. Lop off all the branches, this angelic watcher says. Strip off all the leaves. Scatter all of its fruit. Let the beast and the birds flee. Just a, a nightmare, if you will. Environmentally sensitive? Not, okay? I mean, there's no sensitivity here. The only thing left in this tree is a stump, as I read, with a band of iron and bronze around it. And I read some commentators this week. They said it's too difficult to know what that is. How could we know what that is? Daniel doesn't say what that is. And they write paragraphs and then leave it blank. And I think, I don't think so. I think and I believe the band of iron and bronze represents the stump. And then in verse 23 and verse 26, the metal band seems symbolic of the preservation of King Nebuchadnezzar's life and kingdom for a little while. You say, how so? Look at verse 23 in the middle there, 23b, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, watch this verse 23, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beast of the field until seven periods of time pass over. I think that band of iron and bronze was a means, if you will, of preserving his life. Look at verse 26 as in it was commanded to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time, uh, or for you from the time that you may know, there it is again, that heaven rules. Now, here's this vision. Here's this dream of a massive tree, fruitful, blessed, protective um, both for food as well as for the, the beast of the field. And then it's hewed and chopped down. But I want you to know there's a change in the text here. The, the dream, this is important, changes from a tree, you probably heard it a little bit, to a person, to a person. Look at 15b. I don't want you to miss this. At the end of 15b, or in the middle, let, doesn't say the tree, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Verse 16, let his mind be changed from a man's. And let a beast mind be given, verse 16, to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. Seems very, very clear that the tree represents a man. And the tree in the vision is who? It's Nebuchadnezzar himself. He is the tree. Thus, you see the pronouns there. 
You say, well, can you tell me more? Well, yes, the text can produce that for you. Look at 420. Here in the interpretation, the dream you saw, this is Daniel now, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which heavens of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the, he the heavens lived. Verse 22, it is what? You... Oh, king. So we're not left. It's a tree, but the tree becomes a person. But the tree here is represented in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. He says there in 22, you're the one who's grown. You're the one who's become strong. Your greatness has been known all over the earth. Your reach goes to the heavens proverbially. Your dominion to the ends of the earth. He says, you're the tree. Just like in Daniel chapter 2, you're the head of gold. can underline that in 22. It is you, O king. In fact, you know that it's him. Look down at verse 25. You, verse 25, shall be driven among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over, pass over you till you know, and here's our theme again, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Listen, beloved, his mind will change from a king to a beast. It's a psychological phenomenon called lycanthropy. There's a name for this, lycanthropy, or it's also called boanthropy. It is the delusion of believing yourself to be a wolf or believing yourself to be a, a beast. Say, how long does this go on for? Thanks for asking. Look at verse 16. Go back to the text now. Verse 16, it says there, and let, at the end of 16, seven periods of time pass over him. A time is a reference to one year. You say, well, Scott, how do you know that? You can look it up, write it down. Daniel 7, 25, a time, and I'll explain more of this later, is one year. So this angelic watcher comes down out of the sky and he says, this is going to happen to you for a time, seven periods, which is for seven years. You say, why though? Why did this happen to him? Look at verse 17. It's there in the text. The sentence is a decree of the watchers. I mean, it just it must have been shocking to see this and Daniel interpret this. The decision by the word of the holy ones to the end, here it is, that the living may know, that's you, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. I like what Sinclair Ferguson said. He said this decree was not left to Nebuchadnezzar's imagination. 
It was to teach men, us, that God reigns, that he sets up, Ferguson said he pulls down kingdoms, that his actions in history focus on the humbling of men in order that they may dispense with their foolish pride and acknowledge him as their God. Well said, end of quote by Ferguson. The truth is, here's, this is what Mary rejoiced in, in Luke 1:51, speaking of the coming birth under the Magnificat, is he has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts, speaking of Jesus. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ will do and has done and will continue to do. You say, well, what happened? Look at the text in verse 18. The dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, and we get 18, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar says, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Tell me, Daniel. You did it before in chapter 2, maybe 30 years ago. I saw the three walk out of the fire in chapter 3. Tell me, what's going to happen here? And so now you can pick up 19. Here's, he knew it. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar was clearly dismayed, underline this, for a while. And his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered him and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Daniel, or by his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, answered and said, my Lord. How do you think he said it? I think he said it like this. My Lord. May the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. See why? I think Nebuchadnezzar was his friend. I think he's been serving a prideful king for 30 years, though Daniel knows the true God. But there was not a pride in Daniel. Finally, king, you get it. He waited. Look, if it was only for your enemies, Nebuchadnezzar, it would be okay. God's judgment is going to fall. And Daniel, in one human sense, has a broken heart. But I'll tell you what Daniel 4 shows us. It assures us that this people in exile that these people who have suffered, some of them now for at least 30 years, taken, stripped, taken out of Jerusalem, the temple, you know, vessels all taken, taken away, maybe on ropes, as it says in extra biblical literature, hooks in their nose. They, the people of God, not only had Babylon, the Babylonian army come in, they de devastated Jerusalem. They went into the temple. They took their gods. We have conquered you. 
And Daniel here in the book in the writing is saying, oh, no, 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 not so fast. I'm punishing those people, but despite the appearances, our God is sovereign, amen, over all the kings and kingdoms, and he gives them to whom he will. This is the focus of the chapter on the sovereignty of God. He raised up Nebuchadnezzar, and he's ready to take him down, not completely here, chapter 5, we'll look at that. But he's going to take him down to the stump. He's going to send him out to the White House grass, I call it. Lycanthropy, boanthropy. He's going to grow nails like claws. His hairs begin to become like an eagle. You're going to be put out there for a period of time until you, Nebuchadnezzar, bow your knee. But just a second, have you bowed your knee? Some of you high school kids may be saying, I don't know. Don't, don't put God off. He's been coming after this king a long time. And it shows you the mercy of God for a long time in his life. But here... The angelic watcher comes down and he announces this judgment until you recognize that the most high rules. Here's the point. Don't let it go. The kingdom of men. He's in control right now. Amen. You don't think he's surprised God by California. You don't think he's surprised by the appearance of a civil war in our own country. You don't think he's surprised by our governor, do you? Here, here is what the text is saying to us. He rules the kingdom of men. In fact, in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ said to Pilate, you would have no power over me unless it had been given to you from what? Above. Pilate's not in control. God's in control. He allowed, if you will, the verdict to be placed. He will be crucified over a notorious criminal. How? Sovereignty of God. So let me say this to today to encourage you. Sovereignty can, number one, take, take away anxiety over the future. In other words, you, me, your children, your grandchildren. You do not know what's going to happen, and that would be true. But I know that Isaiah 40, verse 17 says, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. I've been watching a little bit of the civil war internally in Russia, Russia, Captains, military leaders, Putin, all that stuff, Wagner. But here it says all the nations are as nothing before him. Listen, I just want to remind you, our God reigns, doesn't he? You do not have to be anxious. Now you say, well, Scott, I don't know what's going to happen. Either do I, but I, don't, I know that God's in control. Secondly, sovereignty takes away fear, fear regarding future events. Job 9.12 says, who will say to him, what are you doing? He's in control. 
If you want to know that, here's his people. Here they are, the apple of his eye, carted off through three successive deportations from Jerusalem, 900 miles away into Babylon, probably taken by ropes. Maybe there were hooks in their nose. They went out and conquered their temple back in Jerusalem, took away all the vessels, all the things there, you know, hazed the city, blew it up in essence, put fire on it. I mean, but I just want to tell you, our Lord knows he, he says, does Job in 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours is thwarted. He's in control. And finally, not only does it take away anxiety and fear, but thirdly, I would say that it gives you courage, courage to act in confidence. You think you should be passive in light of this? I don't. I don't want to be passive. Courage to act that our very hairs of our head are numbered. And he wants you to act and not be passive. And I think I'm saying that because certain people who build into a theology, a post you know, millennial theology that our world is going to get better and better and better... It's very active because they want to usher in the kingdom. We believe that Christ is going to come back and he's going to first set up his millennial kingdom. But listen, I encourage you to act. I glanced over, I won't point to him in the service, but Michael Marr is running from Congress here in our church. And he's acting. You say in a very democratic uh, California state, yes, active. But what's the Lord want you to do? What does he want you to do? Don't hang back. Don't sit back. You need to roll your sleeves up. You need to get involved. And I want to encourage you to act. These men are acting. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego acted. They weren't just cruising into retirement. They're young men. No, they're active. It can be that our God can deliver us from the fire. But even if he does not, we're not bowing to your God. So act. Towner said in his commentary in chapter four, there's two sovereignties here. And I thought that's true. They're acting like they are. There's one human weakness and frailty. Or secondly, I would say there's a divine power and authority. And the question I leave you with this day is who rules your life? Is it you or is it God? You might think it's you. You know how I mean that. But ultimately, God is over everything. You say, that's the dream revealed. How was it interpreted? You got to come back next week, okay? That's as far as I can get. You come back and we'll look at the dream interpreted by Daniel and you will be shocked by Nebuchadnezzar. What do you mean hair and like feather, like eagle's feathers and nails and he's crawling about. I mean, I don't want to, maybe I'll do that next week. He's, he's on all fours until he, I believe, was converted. You got to come back next week, bring three people with you. Let's pray.